Welcome to ER Debrief Podcast. Two ER nurses recapping the 90s TV show ER. Remember to rate, subscribe, and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts. It really helps promote the podcast and improve our following. Please pause for an important directive from Dr. Morgenstern, Chief of Surgery at County General Hospital. This episode contains heavy themes and serious content. Listener discretion is advised. All stories shared in this podcast have been altered to protect the identity of our patients and colleagues. Any perceived medical advice from the show should not be used for real-life medical concerns. Always consult your personal physician before proceeding with any new practice or treatment. This podcast will include spoilers for the episodes we are discussing, but there will not be any future episode spoilers. Thank you. Before we get started, we have a trigger to talk about. Our amazing colleague messaged us with some information that we want to share. In one of the episodes, we spoke about confirming gestational age with routine ultrasounds. There was a part in one of the previous episodes where Dr. Ross and Dr. Lewis were debating the gestational age of a pregnant woman. Our colleague informed us that routine ultrasounds for gestational age only became standard in Canada in the past five years. So it's understandable that there was some ambiguity in this case as this was not a routine practice at the time. It's just funny to me that we're now referring to the 90s as back then, <laughs> as if like our early childhood years were so long ago that now it's like the technology is so outdated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it wasn't that long ago. It was not. And yet here we are as if it's like the 90s are like way back when. <laughs> it's just nuts to me. Love it. We're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> this calling that informed us about the routine ultrasounds also had an amazing story to share about a delivery and we asked if we could put it on the podcast and she was very kind to let us share it so next is her sharing her story about this delivery it's great hey melissa and julie okay so as requested here's my little uh, summary story from my interesting experience when i was a resident um, so I was a first year resident and I was working in obstetrics. This is in a different city from the one that we live and practice in now. It would have been a weekend or an evening of a weekday uh, because my staff physician that I was working with had gone home. It was not really home call per se, but from what I recall, the physicians would like go home, have dinner at home, maybe stay at home for a few hours if there wasn't much going on on the ward. Uh, so I don't think anyone was in active labor at that time or in any case, my staff had gone home. Uh, and a patient arrived. Uh, she was a young woman and uh, she was pregnant, but she wasn't certain how far along she was. She hadn't had any prenatal care in the pregnancy, so there were no ultrasounds, nothing to indicate how far along she might be. As from what I remember, she was probably somewhere in the ballpark of like 30 weeks, like give or take a few weeks younger or older. And uh, that is a, there's a huge difference in development between a 28 week baby and a 32 week baby. That's like the difference between like significant support uh, in the NICU versus 
um, possibly baby doing kind of okay enough that they can stay with mom after the birth. And certainly this is way out of my depth as a first year resident. So once I realized what was going on with this patient, I called the staff doctor I was working with and she was very difficult. I have no idea why, but she essentially refused to come in after my phone conversation with her. And ultimately I got the charge nurse to call her and pretty much order her to come in and help. Um, so she arrived, we did what's called a double setup, which is where you set up the operating room to be ready for for a vaginal delivery or for a stat emergency C-section. I had by this point done a bedside ultrasound just to try to figure out if the baby was head down or not. And it did appear that the baby was head down. But in the OR, when uh, mom started pushing, the first part of the baby that emerged was actually an arm. Uh, so that's less than ideal. <laughs> so she did end up uh, being delivered by emergency C-section and mom and the baby were transferred to a different hospital that had a higher level of NICU care. I can't remember for sure how far along that baby was. It was again, ballpark 30 weeks. And ultimately, I think the baby and mom both did okay, but it was a very tense and scary situation. So it just kind of goes to show that even though ultrasound is much more wild, widely available now than it was in the mid-90s, we still have women who, for many different reasons, may not have access to prenatal care. And so we have to try to use other means of figuring out how far along they might be and just keep a high degree of concern and um, suspicion for preterm labor in, in women who haven't had the opportunity to have good follow-up and good care in their pregnancies. And that's my story. I should mention as well that like thinking about that story made me remember a few other absolutely insane things that happened during that same rotation. I had a lot of kind of unpleasant experiences with the obstetricians, unfortunately. Like there was a bit of a negative culture in that department, which I hope has since changed because it was just really backwards. But one of the stories that I remember was myself and a medical student. So I was a first year resident and then there was this medical student helping uh, an OB just assisting her while she was suturing after a woman had delivered. And so we were both kind of helping to hold hold tissue such that the obstetrician could suture. And she ended up poking the medical student and giving her a needle stick injury in her finger. And then afterwards berated her for wanting to go and get medical care for this this needle stick like she wanted very appropriately to go and um, get blood tests and so on and ensure that she hadn't been infected. And this um, obstetrician was absolutely awful to her and this poor medical student came crying to me and I was like no you need to go down to emergency and go and get this looked after it just the whole thing was absolutely insane it's just another another story of how sometimes unfortunately medical training can be really really inhumane and sometimes learners are treated awfully badly by their seniors <sighs> anyway thanks for your interest in this story I'll be interested to hear how it turns out in your podcast Bye. everyone happy monday welcome back we've had a much needed break and have spent some time revamping a few ideas for the podcast you might notice a few things that are different and we hope you enjoy them in the time that we've been away so much has happened in the world and we want to address everything and sort of talk about it a bit more we've talked about racism and its implications in our world in previous episodes as it pertains to the show 
but we feel like we need to do a bit more reading on the topic ourselves and we want to share that we plan to consume a lot more resources in terms of our reading about systemic racism and how it impacts our world. There's been a global awakening and, and we're sort of in the midst of the beginning of this revolution and it seems like people are listening unlike any other time. I'm sure that in our generation, at least, that people are listening to Black voices and understanding that we have a problem that we need to address. We posted on our Instagram page about how we support Black Lives Matter and our position has not changed. As white people, we have been silent as a collective for far too long. We're late in this movement. We're late in recognizing that we need to change this from within, from within ourselves. And we have to do the work and we have to make changes to ensure that Black and Indigenous people are treated equally and that police brutality and systemic racism ends. We want to highlight a few Black voices and allies of Black voices in the Instagram world that have contributed greatly to our learning over the past few years, but also very recently. We will list them in our podcast description for this episode and we will also list them in an Instagram post and we plan to do a highlight of resources that have been helpful to us. A great viral post that I saw on Instagram from Callie Rock sums up the message we want to get out. Whether you're posting on social media or protesting in the streets or donating silently or educating yourself or having the tough conversations with family and friends, a revolution has many lanes. Be kind to yourself and to others who are traveling in the same direction. Just always keep your foot on the gas. While white privilege is a problem and something that makes us uncomfortable or defensive, it is important to remember that we can use it to dismantle the system that oppresses lives around the world. Julie and I are going to commit to reading more and learning more about this topic. So let's do this together. Okay, so. Let's start this episode. Um, into it. Melissa, what are your facts for this week? Oh, this week, Julie, I have a great fun fact for you. Oh, my God. Um, so it is pertaining to this episode again. So there is an actor named Vondi Curtis Hall okay. who plays the transgendered woman Okay. in this episode. Yes. He was actually nominated for an Emmy Award based off of this episode episode really yeah for this role this role yeah wow so he did a great job like this amazing was so good job. yeah this was so good yes i loved loved his acting in this and so he was nominated for outstanding guest actor and he did unfortunately did not win but it's a pretty big deal to be nominated i think yeah and then later he actually returns to the series in season eight he plays a different character, Roger Simmons, so we'll have to watch out for him in okay. several years yes. down the road. <laughs> he um, also directs two episodes in season eight. Oh, great. Um, the episodes are Start All Over Again, and It's All in Your Head. So pretty cool. Like He goes on to kind of return back, and he got nominated for an Emmy Award for a guest actor which I think is pretty cool yeah so yeah I mean I don't watch Emmy Awards very often no. but for such a minor role it seems like a pretty big achievement to be nominated 
I think so too. I didn't yeah. even know that this category existed. Neither so. did I. That's very <laughs> yeah. really cool. It was cool to yeah. uh, learn about, but yeah, that's my fun fact. I love it. This episode is titled ER Confidential. It is written by Paul Manning and directed by Daniel Sackheim. And its air date was November 17th, 1994. This episode is the Thanksgiving episode, um, which brings unusual patients and family into the ring. After Carter treats a depressed transgender woman for lacerations, the woman commits suicide by jumping off the roof of the hospital. In frustration, Carter explodes at Dr. Benton, but later spends Thanksgiving with him and his family. Ross treats a man who was pecked by a turkey, then leaves for Jamaica on vacation with our favorite pharmaceutical rep. Susan Lewis continues to worry about Div Svetic, whose condition seems to be worsening. All right, what are your duels <laughs> for this episode? Okay, like, I'm going to go full defibrillation at 200 because this was a sweet episode, and I, it was just so good. I was engaged the entire time. I completely agree. I don't know if it was because we took a little bit of a hiatus and I was, like, super refreshed coming back into it or if this episode actually was, like, as great as I think. But, yeah, I agree. And I'm just going to top yours a little and go with 210. Just one up in me. A little over defibrillation. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Melissa, let's talk about this episode of ER. Sounds great. It's a heavy episode. Well, no, like there are some funny things, but I think we have a lot of content to cover. There's a lot of things that are brought up in this episode that, that are going to yes. be relevant to today. Yes. There yeah. is tons of stuff to talk about in this episode. Yeah. And I'm worried that it's going to be really long, but stick with us because it's going to be really fun. Yeah. All right. So the opening scene of this episode is Div Svetic recording himself on his little personal recorder talking about how much he despises his patients his job and basically his life so i do have a clip of all of the things that he is saying so um we'll just insert that right here hours ludicrous staff meetings stink of the halls and the patients the patients you find yourself searching for ways not to hate them you know, little tricks like um, she shares a birthday with your mother or he looks like the brother of a friend. It doesn't work. You feel nothing. Every drop of pleasure has drained from your life. You can't sleep, you can't think, you can't concentrate. You trouble sleeping uh, uh, I was just catching up on some work I have to say in this moment I like kind of felt for the guy I did too like oh like this guy is clinically depressed yes I think absolutely very much struggling in his job I mean they mostly are highlighting his job but like I'm sure mm -hmm. that there's some personal issues as well mm -hmm. that have led into this so yeah I agree with you mm -hmm. it was really hard to watch yeah uh yeah but it's the first time that we've really seen proof that he's depressed this dude needs help Yes. ASAP. Yes. Yeah. So then after Div says all of these things, um, we just head right into the credits. And then we come to Dr. Carter 
and he is practicing sutures on a pig's foot. Uh, pretty funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> while listening to music, I think he's learned that from uh, Dr. Benton, and I really hope he's listening to Snoop Doggy Dog. Yeah. Dr. <laughs> Benton <says>. So good. <laughs> I like that he just brought them from home. He's like, I got a bunch in the freezer, and I'm just going to bring them to oh, work to practice my sutures. Totally. Also, totally. okay. Keep going. I don't know what you're going to talk about next because I want to bring up something. Okay. Um, So I did ask our on-call physician, uh, Dr. Tyra, about pig's feet and if he also practiced sutures on pig's feet and if this is a common occurrence. He very kindly responded and said that it is actually very commonly used because they're cheap and they mimic human tissue quite well. He said that the skin on a pig's foot is slightly tighter and more collagen-y. That Probably for like more tough, like it's just a bit tougher. A little bit tougher, yeah, Yeah. that's what I would assume as well. He said that that makes it a little bit more forgiving for learners, so it makes it a little easier to practice on. Uh, He said that also navel oranges and large citrus fruits are used, as well as bananas. So those are the things they practice on. There you go. (laughs) Fruits of their labor, as they might say. That's right. (laughs) Love it. You Uh, are welcome. I'll just see myself out. (laughs) (laughs) And that's our podcast. And that's the end. Goodbye. (laughs) We're done. We'll never speak to you again. We're not going to be topping that line. (laughs) Okay, what was it that you wanted to add? Okay, well, there's the part where Doug brings in a pie. Mm-hmm. Did you, are, were you going to talk about that I was all? not, but yeah. Oh, my God! There's a bit, like, there is such a funny part in this, like, so he brings in the pie, and he brings it over to Jerry, and Jerry's like, oh, nice. He opens it up, but this is for potluck. Like, this is a Thanksgiving potluck that Doug has brought this pie for, the pecan pie. And Jerry just goes in to taste it. And then Doug goes, oh, yeah, like, help yourself, buddy. He says sarcastically, Jerry whips out a fork from his pocket. Oh! <laughs> I just completely <laughs> missed that. He, like, whipped out a fork that he's got, like, it's like Joey Turbiani from Friends. He's just got a spare fork in his jacket ready whenever no he needs it. way. That is Jerry. Oh, that's so funny. That, I had no idea. That was so funny. I, I, I almost, like, I almost shut my laptop screen because I thought that was so I funny. I that he pulled a fork oh. out. That's the best. <laughs> so good. He's like, well, we got a situation here. <laughs> like, I just got the green light. Yeah. I'm going to go. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I wish I had caught that. I can't believe I didn't. And then we go to Dr. Carter asking Dr. Benton what time Thanksgiving dinner at his family's house is going to start. And Dr. Uh-huh. Benton looks at him like, why do you care? <laughs> and, uh, Dr. Carter's like, your mom invited me. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Benton's response was, Carter, my mother isn't in control of her faculties. So clearly not saying that he is welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Here is a boundary and this is it. And you've crossed it and we're going to get you back over that line. (laughs) You are not welcome. You're not welcome. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So yeah, poor Carter kind of cut at the knees there. He seemed to be planning to go. Yeah. (laughs) 
Poor guys doesn't have Thanksgiving plans now. <laughs> and Thanksgiving, like, like for Americans, is such a big deal. Whereas in Canada, Thanksgiving is a fun holiday, but it's really nowhere near at the same level as it is in the U.S. Right. Ours is a lot earlier. Yeah. It's not like a build-up to Christmas. In the U.S., at least from what I've heard, is that Thanksgiving is like a bigger holiday than Christmas. Right. Like, even just from television, it shows how much of a bigger deal it is. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, like, it's an okay deal here, but it's not like... Thanksgiving. Like, they yeah. have, like, Black Friday and then Thanksgiving and football and, like, it's parades at and- once. Yeah. 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 We're not like quite that crazy. Yeah. It's like the difference in cheerleading between here and there. I feel like cheerleading is a huge deal in high school in the States. Yes. And it's just not a big deal in Canada. No. In my high school, um, they tried to start a cheerleading squad and oh. no one showed up to the, the tryouts. tryouts. <laughs> so <laughs> bad (laughs) i mean i i wonder if maybe my facts were a little bit wrong with that there might have been a few people but it was like really minimal right people showed up and do this what's so funny is um well not funny but like cheerleading in the u.s is like such a big deal like yes competitions and and it's like an athletic sport like they actually do intense things literally have serious injuries from it did you watch that netflix yes cheer cheer yes so good so good so so good it did teach me a lot about cheerleading that i didn't understand yeah i remember when i was a kid so my mom is a teacher and she worked at this high school back when i was growing up which was a different city and she worked at this high school and teaching ib french and she was the supervisor for the cheerleading team Oh, okay. And there was also a cheerleading competition in this. And it was like a oh. small city. So it was like all these schools would um, would compete. And there was also a huge basketball tournament too. Oh. Which was actually so much fun. Like it was a smaller high school. It was also a small, yeah, small city, which I've said already. But had like a really big culture around basketball and cheerleading. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I just remember oh. as a kid feeling like it was so much fun. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh-huh. I think maybe it also matters, like, what the teachers foster, right? Like, if yeah. there was a teacher mm-hmm. that was really into cheerleading one year and, like, started this program mm-hmm. and it became a big thing, then absolutely, right? Like, even cheer, yeah. like, the school that has these phenomenal cheerleaders, like, Navarro, is, like, a yeah. small little community college. Like, yeah. it's not a huge deal. Like, True. it's not one of the big, like, state schools or yeah. anything like that. Like, it's a small little school, but it just happens to have this, like, phenomenal coach that decided to foster this program. Like, so cool. It totally depends on the teachers, too, I think. Yes. But, yeah. But, yeah. I do remember right. going into grade 10 and being like, I'm going to go to a high school football game. It's going to be so great. And, like, me and my best friend showed up, and it was dead. very much <laughs> dead. <laughs> there was no one. There's no bleachers. There's nowhere to really watch. You can, like, stand on the sidelines, I guess. <laughs> like, like a children's soccer game. And I, I just was like, why are we doing this? Like, we shouldn't be here. This oh is my so God. dumb. So, yeah. Yeah. It's just differences in you Canada. You know what? And there's certain things that I wish that we had a bit more of, like with football culture, 
like I wish we had a little bit more of that and maybe I just went I went to a private high school so maybe there just wasn't as much of that because the population didn't support like that big of a camaraderie with sports but Mm. but like I wish we had a bit more of that culture where there was like basketball and football played and like it was a huge event to go to as a high school student. That's fair. Yeah. I think so too. It would be way more fun. It would be, be so much fun. Yeah. Like every Friday you go to the football game. Yeah. That'd be fun. I would oh, actually man. very much enjoy that. That's a huge part of, I think, you know, like in the United States, it's a huge part of the high school culture. Right. And, and like college socializing ish, like culture. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. That just doesn't exist in Canada. No. Like, I went to a public high school and like, no one cared about the football team. And like, <laughs> if you were on it, great. And like they would get the same like Letterman jackets, but like yeah, no one cared about you. Like right. it wasn't cool. It was like yeah. I feel like Canada for the most part is like way more hipster in that sense. That's yeah. just like the jocks are not necessarily the cool guys. Right. Like yeah. no one specifically even I felt like was super cool. Like these, no. this is the group I want to be a part of. No, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Didn't yeah. exist. There was just a ton of different groups of friends. Yeah. So I don't know. Interesting differences in yeah structure there. Social yes. structure, I guess. But Huge digression. Huge We're digression. gonna get back to this show. Yeah, let's but... get back to it. <laughs> Um, all right. So we were just talking about Dr. Carter's Thanksgiving dinner, which I did think was going to be a very short little point and it turned into a very big conversation. Um, I just wanted to mention it because it does become important later. Yeah. Dr. Carter and Dr. Benton then attend to an MVC victim who crashed her car into a bridge. She turns out to be a transgender female. The entire episode, Dr. Carter and Dr. Benton do not manage the information well. Uh, They are visibly uncomfortable when interacting with her, and it's pretty uncomfortable to watch. Well, I even just found the way they're like, okay, we're going to undress you now. And I was like, even in a scenario where you're not dealing with a trans woman, and you're dealing with a patient who you're going to undress, I just think there's a better way to do that. Right. Like, they're not even respecting basic privacy issues. Like, you would never just have a patient. Like, you would never just undress a patient. No. You would ask permission. Right. Or you would get them to change into... A gown. A gown. Like, she is more than capable. She has two lacerations, like, one on her side and one on her head. She's more than capable of changing herself into a gown. So they should have provided her with a gown, given her a minute to change. Or the nurses could have preemptively done that. Uh Like, she was just in this room alone, which seems weird. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, like, the whole thing, regardless of whether she's trans or Uh not, is handled kind of poorly. Very poor. Yeah, Um, very poor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because, like, yeah, even as a non-trans person, it's pretty disconcerting that they just start taking her pants off yeah like yeah yeah yeah. unbuttoning her pants like what are you doing yeah (laughs) yeah I totally agree yeah um yeah it was pretty uncomfortable and then like once Dr. Carter found out the way that he informed Dr. Benton was just like really he was trying to be sensitive yeah sensitive about it but he, it just didn't come across that way at all. No, it And it didn't. was more like she was so probably left so embarrassed about that whole interaction. Yes. And so, then when Dr. Yeah. Carter's, like, suturing her, he's super uncomfortable. He's not talking to her. Like, 
just through these non-verbals, he is just fully shaming her yeah. this whole time. Yeah. Which, like, I mean... And she's being super vulnerable and telling him about her story and how her life has gone. Right. And, and like, trying to get him to understand, I'm, I'm assuming. Like, she's being vulnerable in the hopes that he'll be empathetic to her situation. And he's just awkward. So Through the awkward. whole thing. Totally. Not, totally. like... Yeah. It oh yeah. It was it was bad. And yeah. it's really interesting that we watched this episode right in sort of the week when JK Rowling came out about her tweets about trans people. Yes. It's just okay, so Melissa and I are very big Harry Potter fans. Huge. And we were very big JK Rowling fans. And it has been, you know, she's, J.K. Rowling, Joanne, has come out with many tweets about the trans community. And I think initially people were kind of like, okay, we need to just educate her on, like, trans issues. And she's she's been educated and she's been told so many times. And she's still coming out with these tweets that are so insensitive to the trans community. It's really hard to even defend her anymore. Hey guys, editing Julie here. We uh, want to include a little part um, to clarify what J.K. Rowling was really talking about when it comes to trans um, issues and her beliefs and stance on that. Uh, we didn't re- have a clear idea when we were recording and we gained a better understanding of where she actually stands. So we're just going to include it right now. Okay, back to the show. So I'll explain kind of generally what J.K. Rowling was conveying through her tweets and then ultimately she ended up writing a 3600 word essay explaining her stance on trans issues so in summary she states that she is pro-trans rights but in the same breath she also is opposed to broadening the definition of female to include transgendered females so i don't really know how she's trying to walk this like line between both sides I think that she's trying to say that she respects all people, but that her ultimate allegiance is to biological women. So she ends up saying that she feels that trans women threaten biological women's rights when it comes to women's shelters, safety in bathrooms or change rooms, and medical research for women. She also fears that many young individuals will transition and regret doing so later in life, possibly doing irreversible damage to their bodies. So so although she states she wishes transgendered individuals are safe from scrutiny or personal harm, she also believes that broadening the definition of sex from biological sex to gender will ultimately decrease the rights of biologically born women. That's the best summary that I can really create from a lot of tweets. It's been a long time um, coming and she's just now like really firming up her stance. So there is a lot of information out there about what she has said and like reading her essay on her website um, is a good idea if you're interested in all of this because it's quite extensive. She does say a lot more than what I've just summarized. It's just that that's the best that I could do as far as the 
vast amount of information that she is providing. So yeah, that is J.K. Rowling's stance. It sounds like she's saying women's issues are women's issues and then trans issues are trans issues. But what we know and what research suggests is that women's issues and trans issues are the same. Right. And like, I think she's just trying to separate it out because her idea of women's issues is so strong. Like she wants... And she relates it specifically to sex. Like, yes, your biological sex and your gender. Right. I think she's trying to be on both sides, which is just not possible. Like, yeah, yeah, She's yeah. trying to, like, walk this line of, like, well, I do support trans people, but I don't care because I care about women more so than I care about acknowledging the trans community. Yeah. And so I'm going to uh, negate them to be able to try to support women yeah. first and foremost, which and is if, yeah. what it sounds like. And if anything, like, a cis female will face less discrimination than a transgendered woman. Right. Like they will face much more discrimination and need much more support, support. Totally than agree. people like us who identify as female and were born with the gender that we identify with. Right. Right. So it's like, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So but, like regardless of what she's like trying to say or trying to separate out, it's hurtful to the trans community because yeah. she's negating them as people and that's not okay. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing that we talked about is that as Harry Potter readers, so much of that book is about inclusion and love and acceptance. And the author of that book is basically not following what she wrote about. Totally. And so I, I can guarantee that there are so many people of the trans LGBTQ community who read those books as a kid and probably felt empowered by them. Totally. And then here you have the author that making all these ambiguous tweets about gender and sex. And it's like, Joanne, shut up. She keeps saying if sex isn't real. And what she's talking about is if your biological sex doesn't count. Ultimately, sex doesn't really matter. What you're born with doesn't really matter. Right. Except in a medical situation. That's all that it is at yeah. the end of the day is what exactly. your medical history is. Exactly. So, yeah, it is only important in that context. And other than that, it is just not. And so, like, yeah, regardless of at the end of the day what J.K. Rowling was intending, she's wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, she's wrong. She's hurt a community yeah. of people. And that's all that matters is that you... Yeah now isolated a community of people and you've made everybody that supports Harry Potter so strongly think about whether or not they should be, which sucks because it's a great series. Yes. <laughs> yes. Great I listened, series. well, Melissa doesn't yet, but I listened to this Potterless podcast and basically what they said is that what's so awesome about the Harry Potter community is that it's a pretty accepting group of people and despite the fact that J.K. Rowling has kind of gone off on her own way, um, the fans that support the book and grew up with the message that it communicates still stand true. And there's tons of like fan content that that's been created since then. And so we don't have to like disregard the books just right. because Rowling wrote them, but we can hold her accountable to what she's 
been saying at so. a person yeah yeah but uh, <laughs> let's get let's get back on track <laughs> so two patients come in they are in a high speed collision uh dr green and dr ross kind of take each individual case connie interestingly with the first patient that arrives by ambulance connie appears to come out of the back of the ambulance with this patient and mm-hmm. gives report to Dr. Green. Like, not sure why Connie's in the ambulance. Uh, yeah, yeah. Was she on scene? Like, I don't what, really uh, get that either. I feel like that, that was just like... Why'd you get up in there? Why? Yeah, I feel like why? that was for show. <laughs> um, uh, we would not be doing that. I would very rarely get in an ambulance unless forced. Yeah. I'm only getting in there if we have to transport someone to another hospital and I am needed. Yes. Um, and even then, I'm not happy about it because I get real sick in those ambulances. Yeah. They <laughs> yeah. are a nightmare for motion sickness. Oh, my gosh. Honestly, I don't know how they do. Like, I don't know how they perform basic skills, like doing an IV or 100%. anything. Just we, so in our hospital, it's a policy that we have to transport patients who are having a heart attack that need to go to the cath lab. We come along with the paramedics in case we need to do compressions or whatever. And recently I went along with just a very unstable patient who was going to need more medications to keep them sedated while they were intubated. And I had to draw up meds at one point. And I was like being thrown around the ambulance. I'm like trying to open up packages and drop medications and administer stuff. And I was like, how do they do this job? I don't get it. Like, how do they operate back here? Like, how do you do compressions on a patient when you're being flailed from side to side as they're driving stat to a hospital? Like, I don't know. I don't know the last transport I had to do it was a while ago now because I haven't been regularly in eMERGE mm-hmm. but I had to change the infusion dose on an IV pump um, for a norepi drip yeah and I fell on the patient <laughs> <laughs> like, I just don't even know how they possibly managed this I was like their core strength must be incredible <laughs> I was like, like, I mean, I don't have an upper body, so, like, I get it, yeah. but, like, it was mostly my issue, but, yeah. like, I do not understand how they, like, teeter on these chairs while doing procedures, while the ambulance is moving and bouncing, and, oh, my God, and there's lights and sirens, and I just, I'm motion sick, I have no core, so I have no ability to control myself. <laughs> like, I just, I literally had to push, like, three buttons on the machine, and I could not manage that. It is, so. it is quite the experience. Yeah. So, for all you medics that are listening, we love you, we respect you. Congratulations on your core. Congratulations on your core. <laughs> and, you know what, you probably get a lot of flack from triage nurses, but... Um, we do ultimately love you. We do ultimately love you. So the second patient that comes in from this um, motor vehicle accident is um, ultimately transported to the OR. They confess on the way to the OR to Carol that they were the ones driving the car and that they caused the accident, which ultimately causes two deaths. Uh, the first patient that arrived ends up succumbing to their injuries, as well as a on-scene death by the car that they hit. Carol overhears the survivor of the crash telling his mother that he was not the driver of the car and that it was actually his deceased friend. I was confused about this. So the person that was that died was not the driver, right? He was not the driver. It was the guy that lived that was the driver. Right. 
And then, and he told Carol that. Yeah. And then after surgery, he changed his story when he talked to his mom. His mom asked him what happened. Right. And he changed his story to say that his friend was driving driving. who had passed away. And... Like, I understand his instinct because he's scared he's going to get in trouble. Yeah. But, like, it's a pretty terrible thing to do. I don't know. Um, So, what I found interesting, though, is that Carol's side of it. So, then she knows what he told her beforehand. So, assuming that that's the truth, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he unburdened his soul. He confessed to her before. He potentially thought he was going to die in surgery, right? Right, right, So he told her what seems like the truth. There was no reason for him to lie at that point. Mm -hmm. And then there is a reason for him to lie to his mom because he's maybe worried about repercussions of him being the driver. Uh So he lies to his mom. And then, and Carol overhears this. So then Carol and Lydia have a conversation, and Lydia thinks... She needs to talk to the police about what this kid's told her before surgery. Yeah. And Carol's like disagrees and she's like, I don't think I need to say anything. He was unburdening his soul and she she doesn't think it's her place to say anything. So in the end, Carol ends up just discussing it with the uh, patient and says like, you know, you're going to be talking to the police soon. Mm-hmm. I do think that you should try to tell the truth because yeah. this is something that you're not going to be able to live with. Right? Yeah. It was an accident. You're not going to be able to live with this your whole life. It yeah. crushes your soul. So I don't know. I found that really interesting. I think a lot of nurses would argue maybe about this mm-hmm. possibility. Mm-hmm. So I looked up the information in our Health Information Act in Canada mm-hmm. on like what exactly she needs to disclose. Like, is there a legal precedent to disclose any of this? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of looked at the information. I ended up going down a bit of a rabbit hole <laughs> and did a module that I definitely can use for our education <laughs> for the year. Like we have to do yearly education oh as nurses. And yeah. I ended up doing this huge module. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> about <Melissa>. legal... <laughs> Uh, about the Health Information Act. But so anyway, tell us what you learned. So what I learned, it's still super vague. Okay. <laughs> so like I learned nothing concrete <laughs> <laughs> after all this time. So there are a few reasons um, that you can disclose information without consent of the patient. Most of those reasons include other healthcare providers who are also caring for the patient and just like having that freedom of information to be able to also provide accurate care. So those are a number of the reasons. There was a big list. Um, The situations that pertain to this are going to be when you should be disclosing information, and that is when the police are investigating a life-threatening injury uh, to the individual or if the information is going to avert or minimize an imminent danger. So the first part of that was really what I think pertains to this. So when the police are investigating a life-threatening injury. So that would be this situation because two people died. So this is a life-threatening injury, but it is after the fact. So I don't know, like that was my question. It's saying in the Health Information Act that you should be disclosing if the police are investigating a life-threatening injury. 
So maybe Carol is legally required to maybe disclose. I'm trying to think what I would do in that situation. And I think whenever there's an accident, police are already involved in that scenario. And they're usually, they come to the hospital with the patient. So if there is a disclosure, if I were in that situation, I might leave it to police. Yeah, I think so too. I, I'm with you. Like, that's what yeah. I was thinking, too, is that I would be with Carol. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I would specifically go out of my way to say that Same. this is what he said to me. Same. If I was subpoenaed, then sure. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Like, totally. Because if this ended up being a court case mm-hmm. and you were subpoenaed to come in and ask those questions, yeah. then absolutely I would be honest. I'm yeah. not going to lie for the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, I yeah. don't think that it's necessarily our place to be, like, going out of our way to be yeah. sharing information that a patient just said to us and you don't know that that's true and then the scenario too with with this kid like it doesn't sound like they're drinking it just sounds like it was a terrible accident and he happened to be driving right all right so then we go to dr ross and carol talking about the patient that we were just discussing that went to the or they say they ask how he's doing i think it's dr ross asks carol how he's doing and she says that he's got a really good prognosis he's going to survive and then they are joined by Jerry and Dr. Green, and they all start discussing the dangerous crap they did when they were kids. <laughs> and here's a clip of that interaction. It went up. Is he going to make it? I think so. One out of three. What a waste. Every time I see a kid go up there, I think, there with the grace of God. Tell me about it. You know, when I was in high school, we used to race this guy's TR7 up on River Road. Pin the speedometer at 120. We used to climb those giant TV antennas all the way up to the top. Must have been 200, 300 feet. You did that? Otto Yevich. His dad was a demolitions expert, so we used to steal boxes of dynamite and play chicken. I don't believe you guys. The worst thing Howie Dolan and I ever did was Chinese fire drills at the Velvet Freeze. Yes, you and Howie were born to be wild. (laughs) (laughs) Did I miss something? No, just being publicly ridiculed. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, Julie, what is the most dangerous thing you ever did as a child? Oh my god, I so was a curious. pretty risky kid. Oh, I'm so excited! But, but <laughs> I think, okay, so I was a very defiant child. I was, like, put on, like, I was grounded a lot, and I was also, like, I had to be in my room by myself a lot, because I did okay. things that were not good. Uh-oh. So, but... what I figured out was that I could get out of my room through my window my mom would say or my dad would be like Kate you have to be in your room for 15 minutes and to me that was like an eternity like that's forever I cannot possibly be in my room for 15 minutes like (laughs) no so I figured out we had a bungalow so there wasn't two stories but I figured out how to like lift the screen out of my window and push it out and I would, like, open the door, like, I would open the window and push the screen out and jump out and, like, be like, ha I'm free. Like, <laughs> <laughs> screw you guys. Like, <laughs> joke's on you. I'm free. Awesome. I'm not grounded. And I would, like, I don't even know what I would do. Like, sit on the lawn. Like, like around the backyard. <laughs> I don't even know what I would do. Like, because I couldn't get back in the window because my bed was, like, right underneath the window. So I, like, launched myself out of the window oh. by my bed. So I was, like, ha-ha. And then I had to deal with the consequences of my parents being like, what the heck? Like, how did you get out? Like, why are you outside? You're supposed to be in your room. Oh, my so, gosh. So one day, I'm like, 
brilliant idea. Like, I'm going to get out of my window again. And <laughs> I put the screen down. So, like, this screen has, like, metal edges, right? It's like a... Like, they have sharp corners. Right, right. Yeah. So, I, like... I'm like, ha-ha, like, I'm out again. And I, like, jump down. But the screen, the corner of one of the screens, I landed, like, my left thigh landed on it, and it cut into me. Like, it oh, pierced no. me into my left thigh, like, right underneath my butt. And cut through my jeans, and they are my favorite jeans at the time, these big bell-bottom oh, terrible jeans. Best jeans ever. Best jeans ever. So I, like... <laughs> you know, ran to the back screaming and probably now in retrospect, I should have gotten stitches, but my mom was like, we need to take you to the hospital. And I was like, no, like (laughs) very stubborn child that I was. And she was like, okay, like, I guess we'll just put a bandaid, but it's like probably a good inch. And I still have the scar on the back of my thigh and those jeans were toast. But like, yeah, it was like, and that's not, yeah, I mean, that's the most, rebellious I thing I did I think like it that's awesome. yeah another one was that when I was a kid my dad would take my brother and I skiing all the time we used to live in one province and now we live in another that has mountains but he would take us on vacation to the province in Canada that has mountains which is sort of BC Alberta and we would ski and I just refused to snowplow so I would basically shoot down the mountain straight Oh, God. Without any pizzas or french fries. Oh, geez. Nice. Just, like, zoom right down. And my dad was like, you have to plow. And I was like, yeah, no. It's fine. I'll be fine. That's awesome. <laughs> I have no such stories. I was okay. not a rebellious, rebellious child. Mm-hmm. I was Dr. Green in this scenario. Very tame. Yeah. Um, rarely, rarely got in, like, large trouble. Like, okay. I can't recall a time I was grounded. Like, oh my god, really? Yeah. <laughs> I was a good kid. Goody two shoes. Um, maybe got in like a few arguments with my parents, but I was mostly like passive aggressive. Okay. I would like mostly just like go to my room or like not talk to them or something. And they probably didn't even know I was bad. <laughs> um, that's likely what mostly happened. Aww, um, cute. I was trying to think about like the riskiest thing I did. Like Jerry talks about like strapping C4 to himself. I think <laughs> of, like explosive material of some kind. Um, yeah. And I was just like, I never did anything like that. Like not even close. But there was this one thing that me and my friends from the block that I lived on did. So there was like four families on our block and they all had kids kind of in the same age range. So we all like kind of grew up together and hung out a lot so we used to go to a park yeah close to our house (laughs) and i i want to go back to this spot like i don't even know if i could recall exactly where this spot was but it was just off of this like walking path Mm -hmm. very prominent walking path Mm -hmm. and into like basically the bush and there was a little bit of a drop off Okay. And we used to, like, think that we were risking our lives shimmying down this, like, kind of cliffy thing. And then there was this, like, little creek. And we would hang out by the creek and, like, mess around. Yeah. And then we would climb back up this, like, cliffy thing and leave. (laughs) So we would spend, like, hours there some days. Yeah. And one of the guys, 
would bring like a rope and we would like tie it to a tree and we would like rappel down this cliff. It's so badass. Right? It probably was like the smallest little cliff ever. Yeah. But like to us, it was huge. <laughs> like, Ugh, it was so oh, intense. It was so dangerous. Yeah. Um, I remember like skidding my knee multiple times trying to get down that thing. So I think that's probably the most dangerous thing I ever did. I don't know. I like we used to ride dirt bikes and stuff as kids, but that was all like under parental supervision. So like it wasn't. Didn't feel as dangerous. I mean, dirt bikes are pretty dangerous. I was pretty scared at the beginning using them. Um, And I would only do, like, certain things. Definitely my dad and my brother were, like, a little bit more aggressive with them. But, yeah. But, yeah, like, that was all. It didn't feel dangerous per se because, like, we were doing it with permission. I don't know that my parents ever knew about the... The The repelling... secret spot that we so brilliantly titled it um, so yeah I do need to go back there just to see like how steep and how far this cliff was yeah but yeah oh, I think that's, that's the only awesome. thing that I could really think of this afternoon <laughs> when I was looking at this uh, that's amazing. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So then, um, the police officer L, who we we're starting to love, um, he brings in an animal rights activist who was attacked by a turkey. He was trying to save. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, he was trying to save this, this poor is turkey. Probably one of my favorite parts of the whole, like the whole episode. I totally agree. I love yeah. the whole the arc. whole thing. Yeah. Um, Especially with John. John? Is it John? Tag. Tagliari. Oh, Tagliari. Like, yeah. like it's like yeah, it is his pretty whole good. involvement. Keep going. Yeah, Keep going. it's pretty good. Yeah. Okay, so this animal rights activist whose name is Francis, mm-hmm. um, he is trying to save a turkey from being slaughtered and eaten on Thanksgiving. And so he steals the turkey and I believe takes it into his car and the turkey then turns and attacks him. <laughs> is definitely turned because by the end of the episode he eats some of the turkey but can we talk about what happens in between yes okay so john taglieri has a history on a farm i don't know if it's like his family family he like comes in and he's got like the turkey by the feet he's so excited and he's like and he's like look at this guy like what a beaut and he's like they're like do you think that they would process this at food services and they're like well, I don't know, like, the feathers. They probably won't do the feathers. And he's like, oh, I can do that. Like, <laughs> easy. I'll de-feather the thing. Yeah, I'll, I have tons of 
experience on my farm. And then they're like suturing up the guy. And then in the next room through the windows, you can see him like defeathering this turkey. <laughs> they're like going everywhere. And he's like, you need to close the curtains. You need to close the curtains. I can't watch this. I can't watch this. And then at one point they're like, rolling the turkey on a stretcher downstairs this plucked turkey (laughs) and like it's so funny it It is is so funny yeah I kind of like had a new a different love for tag because I thought he was so funny right he's He's kind of got this like like, yeah like yeah I'll take this turkey like I know farming stuff I know farming things (laughs) yeah yeah that was pretty good Uh, yeah, I really like that. And then I loved that, like, this animal rights activist at the end eats a leg of turkey. And also it it. looks so gross. It looks, like, gray and disgusting. It does look gross. I feel like that's because it's just, like, a fake turkey that's maybe been... but he, like, goes to town. He munches that thing down. Yes, he does. (laughs) That's true. Or maybe it's just, like, a turkey that's been sitting there all day on set while they've been filming. (laughs) Like, who knows? But I love how they, like, look through the window and Tag is just, like... I honestly think Holy it was just feathers. a bunch of feathers that they put on a table and he was just like, bleh, 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 bleh. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, totally. throwing them up in the air randomly. It so fun to do that scene. Oh, so oh. funny. Yeah, that was a great part of this episode. Oh. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, that was so good. <laughs> okay, so then we see a syncopal patient or fainting patient um, with chest pain who comes in. Dr. Green sees her. Dr. Green consults cardiology but there aren't any cardiologists in the hospital which just is pretty weird and so dr langworthy and dr benton attend to this patient and dr green says that her ecg shows st elevation and her x-ray shows a pericardial effusion or like a shadow so they identify this patient as having a pericardial effusion which is basically an increase in fluid in the pericardial sac which is a lining that surrounds the heart. Dr. Benton uh, determines that this patient's going to need a pericardial centesis which is basically a needle that goes into that sac and drains some of the fluid. So Dr. Benton starts that procedure The fluid ends up being too thick, they think it's infected, and so has to convert to an emergency thoracotomy, which is basically going in, opening up a space in between the ribs to go and access the heart directly. He does all of that, he puts in suction, and he is successful, everything is good. But something that stuck with me about this patient was that they had ST elevation on their ECG. So I asked our friend, again, Dr. Tyrone, about what um, ECG changes are visible with a pericardial effusion. If you're not medical, you can just skip ahead like 10 seconds because this is going to make very little sense and I'm not going to really explain the intricacies because it's just too detailed to do so. If you're not medical, don't care, just skip ahead. If you are and you're interested by this information or curious by it, uh, please listen. So here's Dr. Tyrone's explanation. An ECG in pericardial effusion is super interesting. The classic two changes are one, global low QRS voltage and two, electrical alternance. 
I didn't know what alternans were or electrical <laughs> alternans were. So I had to look it up. So the voltage of the QRS changes between high and low. So you'll get a high voltage QRS, then a low voltage QRS, a high voltage QRS, and then a low voltage QRS. His explanation says to imagine the heart floating in a sack of fluid. As the volume increases, the electrical signals coming from the heart get more and more blunted, having to travel through more like stuff or fluid before reaching the chest wall leads. It will therefore look like a normal ECG, but the voltage will be dialed down everywhere. Then as the heart floats in the fluid and rocks back and forth with each beat, depending on if it's moving toward or away from the chest wall, you'll see alternating higher and lower amplitude QRS complexes. Super cool. Way cool. Yeah, I never would have known this. And I think even if I had read it in a textbook, I wouldn't have understood it this way. Because yeah. Dr. Tyrone explains it in such a great way Yeah, that it gives you a visualization of what is happening mm -hmm. and makes you connect that to the ECG. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for this answer. It's great. Yeah, so little you know medical education there there you go <laughs> and so, for those of you who didn't listen it was very educational for all of our medical staff yeah there you go <laughs> all right so then later we see um peter dr benton thanking sarah for letting him do the procedure and she is so supportive of him and yeah. she's just like this is a teaching hospital and that's what we do we're here to support each other we're here to prop each other up yeah and i was just like oh i love her I love, love her, her too. Yeah. I also kind of felt like Peter was maybe leaning towards like, hey, you're into me. So like you obviously helped me. And she was like, oh. no, I, this is a teaching hospital and I wanted to help you because oh. I think it's beneficial to your career. And then when he walked away, I was like, there. <laughs> he wants her. He wants her so bad. And she oh. knows it too. And she knows it. And she just shut it down. Yeah, I love she it. Did. Yeah. That's what we're supposed <laughs> to do, Peter. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's so funny. Uh -huh. I was like, wow, what a great mentor. <laughs> so it naive. was a power move. Love it. Then Carol uh, comforts the mother of the boy who passed away in the car accident mm -hmm. from earlier mm -hmm. um, after this mother sees her son. And it made me think of something that I do for families. So the, the mother said to Carol that he felt so cold and it just like triggered me because I often, and a nurse or somebody told me to do this a while back mm -hmm. and I don't know who it was, but whoever it was, I wish I remembered because I wish I could like thank them for it. Mm -hmm. And so when someone passes away, I, when you're like preparing or like cleaning them up for the family to come and see them, yeah. I wrap, while we're cleaning them up, I wrap their arms and hands in warm blankets oh. so that their arms and hands stay warm so that when the family comes in yeah. and Typically, the part of the body that they're going to touch is either the face or the hands. Their hands yeah. And typically, it's the hands. And the hands tend to get colder, I think, Faster. thicker. Yeah. Yeah, because the circulation decreases there fast. So, so then when they hold their hands, they're warm. Mm -hmm. I, like, take those blankets off, like, right before the family comes in the door. Right. And toss them in the linen. It just made me think, like, when this mother said this, I was like, oh, like, it just reminds me that that 
yeah. is an extra step that I should continue to do. But whoever... actually, I'm going to do that, I think, in my own practice. Yeah. yeah. It's a nice thing to do, and it's it super is nice. easy. Yeah, it doesn't like, take much. And in, the, in our code rooms or recess rooms, there's a blanket warmer right there. So it's super easy. You don't have to, like, yeah. run anywhere to go get stuff. So, yeah, yeah, it's just a nice thing to do, I think. Yeah, that is really nice. Yeah. So somebody told me to do it a while ago and like, I thank them very much for it. I think it's a great gesture to just do that maybe doesn't get recognized, but I think it would get recognized if it was cold. Like that's a hard thing to remember. Yes. Right. It is. So, yeah. yeah. But anyway, that was just something small that just triggered my memory. Mm. Um, so Dr. Carter then is made aware by Jerry that there is a jumper on the roof. And he runs mm. to the roof because he mm-hmm. finally is triggered that it might be his transgendered patient, Miss Carlton. And so he runs up to the roof and pleads with her to stay or to not jump. And Div ends up coming up to help. And just as Carter is introducing him, the patient jumps. So, oh, I just can't even imagine watching that happen. When I mean, I understand why they called Div, but when they did, just because of what we know about him, I was like, oh, he's going to make this so much worse. Like, I don't think he's actually going to have any capacity to help this woman. But also, he's not the reason why she jumped. But Right. He got no opportunity to say anything. I thought that there was hope when it was just Carter Mm. and her, but... Yeah, then as soon as Div got there, I was like, crap, this, yeah. is, this is not going to end well. That's fair. And um, again, just amplifies, there's not really much that we need to say. It just kind of um, is an example of what trans people go through all the time. Right, absolutely. Then later, Dr. Benton ends up supporting Dr. Carter because he's pretty broken up about his patient committing suicide. And Dr. Benton says, you know, it's my responsibility because I should have seen her car accident as a suicide attempt and I didn't. Mm -hmm. But like, I get why they didn't. Like how Mm -hmm. many motor vehicle accidents do you see? Like lots. Yeah. Right. Especially in Chicago, for sure. Totally. They're going to see a ton. And I wouldn't necessarily always ask this suicidal question for a car accident. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, yeah. I mean, maybe because she drove her car into a bridge with like no drugs or alcohol on board, like, why is that occurring? Maybe that would. But if you were busy and you were in the middle of like a big trauma day, which they were, they had like mm-hmm. two big traumas come in kind of back to back and mm-hmm. like they had a lot going on. And so, yeah, I can see how that maybe would get missed. But yeah, super devastating at the same time, I can't imagine. Like, I know that there's been some peace officers in our hospital that have watched patients jump, and I just can't imagine living with that or coming back to work the next day. Yeah. Like, that would be really tough. That would be hard. Yeah. So. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Heavy. Very heavy. What made the whole story so, like, emotional was when she was talking about how her dad, she didn't have really a, race, a relationship with her father. And then she, they established contact and he came to her house and she answered the door wearing a dress. And the father said, oh, are you so-and-so's girlfriend? girlfriend? And she was like, no, dad, it's me. 
And the dad was like 100% accepting of her. Yeah. And it was like, like it you just look cut, like it cut sister. me deep. You look yeah. like your sister. And it cut me deep. And I was like, this, that is so, so amazing. Yeah. That's, well, well not amazing. The- just like so loving that this dad, despite even, you know, there are people even now that have a hard time accepting this. And, you know, in the nineties that he was just like, yeah, I, this doesn't matter. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah absolutely. I don't care. Well, yeah. and like, I think that, um, the patient says that they're, dad told them that like you may wear a dress but you're still my son yeah like uh, incredible yes and and so it just shows like the societal pressures on how much like she had a supportive family or supportive father at least yeah it was the society looking at her like she was disgusting and making her feel like she was disgusting yeah she was saying like i think maybe i am disgusting yeah. That, like, it was society that threw her over. Totally. It wasn't her family's yeah. disapproval or the mm-hmm. isolation maybe from her friends. It was the just general public mm-hmm. looking at her like she mm-hmm. was something wrong. Yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah. She even talked about when she's walking along the street, she can tell when people are kind of questioning or she can tell when they see, when they finally make the connection that her how she identifies in terms of her gender is not the same as her biological sex. Right. And the judgment and the disgust that comes with that. And I think that's just also a really great message for us as healthcare providers to really check yourself with how you're behaving around people who don't fit, um, the, like what society deems as the norm. Right. And that's something we have to move completely away from because normal is a horrible word to right. describe something. And so, you know, like we need to really check ourselves with how we behave around people who are trans, non-binary, the LGBTQ community, and how we behave around them and talk about their health. Absolutely. Because I don't think enough of us are as aware as we need to be. Absolutely. Myself included in that. 100%. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, and it just really like goes to show why like Von D. Curtis Hall, the actor, gets nominated for an Emmy in this. Because like, yeah, just incredible portrayal mm-hmm. of a trans woman in the 90s when like this mm-hmm. was way less talked about than it is now, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, just an incredible job. Um, by him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yes. Um, and then we go to, I just wanted to make one more comment about the Thanksgiving dinner because at this, this is the point chronologically where the Thanksgiving dinner for the emergency staff is happens. right after this, right after she jumps. Yes. Yeah. Which is super tough. Like I felt a little bit weird about that too. Yeah. It's a rough transition, but <laughs> here's, here's one thing that I felt about that. And maybe this is what you're about to say is that when we're working, this is exactly how it goes. You go from a situation that's incredibly traumatic and emotional into it's lunch hour, and you're yeah. going to be in the break room with a bunch of your colleagues. And having a potluck. And having a potluck. Yeah. Or like yeah, this or is exactly in. how uncomfortable it is and how how like unnerving it can be to work in an emergency room. Well, and if somebody jumped off of the building in an office, yeah, everyone would go home. Mm-hmm. Everyone would go home. Mm-hmm. They would be given the day. Mm-hmm. There would be psych available. 
Yeah. There would be counseling available. There would be a debrief. Like we, I would assume that if something tra- like big and traumatic like that happened, we would have a debrief. Yeah. But it would probably be days later. Yeah. You're not going to like be able to just go home after no, an event. You like can't that. just go home. No, you're there. You have to stay. Like, yeah, it's unsafe to leave. <laughs> like, yes. So yeah. you have to stay. You have to treat the next patient who has abdominal pain or stub their toe or whatever it is. Yeah. And you have to have the potluck that you've been planning all day because everybody brought food. Yeah. And like, it's just, you have to be able to shift emotional gears so fast. Well, yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. That. Yes. yes. Shift emotional gears. It definitely totally. is traumatizing to, in its own degree. Yeah. I think that there's an expectation too in the emergency department mm-hmm. that you don't go home. Yeah. That you should be tough enough to yeah. deal with this. Yeah. Right? Like, no matter how traumatic the event is, how big or small, and how you're dealing with it. Yeah. There is a little bit of a culture expectation that says, you know, like, we understand that you're upset, and we're here to support you 100%. The staff Mm -hmm. is amazing Mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. But I think there's just, like, this culture pressure to be like, suck it up. Mm-hmm. And go to the next patient. Yeah, totally. Right? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It's kind yeah, of, it's both sides. right. Supportive, but, like, also, just keep doing the job. Yeah, but also <laughs> like, just get, like, you know. Get her done. Now we have to move on. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. And, like, maybe you shouldn't be in emergency if you're not yes. tough enough yeah. to deal with situations like this. Yeah. Which is super unfair. Yeah. <laughs> like, super unfair. Yeah. So, anyway. You're right. I don't know. But that's why we do, we go into like this desensitizing mode where we look like horrible people because right. we have to deal with this trauma all the time. Right. So what I was actually going to say about the Thanksgiving dinner, which is super lighter. Okay. Um, <laughs> good. Good, good, good. <laughs> is that they use a catheter bag as the gravy bowl. I don't know <laughs> if you noticed. No. So there is literally somebody holding a catheter bag full no. of gravy. And they are pouring it on they're holding the bag above their head and they're pouring the gravy onto people's plates from the catheter bag like i'm sure it's clean but like still that's gross the the, it is 100 percent like clean but it is (laughs) the idea is disgusting like it's probably cleaner than your average gravy boat because it's sterile yeah but Still, it's so gross, the visual of gravy coming out of a catheter bag onto yeah. your plate. I just wouldn't be able to eat it. I, I would not be able to eat it. No. Oh, so no, gross. No, 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 no. Nope. Anyway. Nope. I had to pass, mention that disgusting mess. pass. Yeah. All of that. Oh, so gross. <laughs> anyway. How did they get it even into the catheter bag? Because they'd have to like... Oh, that's so true. Because <laughs> they'd, <have> to... <laughs> they'd have to get it through the tubing yeah, they to get even into to. the bladder of the... So you have, like this tiny little funnel that like goes in. Yeah. <laughs> Someone made like a really or big like effort. It in. Yeah, to make this happen. Like these 60 cc like, syringes. Like, you can't see me, but I'm motioning. I'm holding this little tube. <laughs> <laughs> like, they yeah. would have had to have this little funnel. I feel like they would have syringed it in. That's what I would have done. Is take a 60 cc syringe. Oh my god. And like pull up gravy. Mm-hmm. And then like inject <laughs> it into the tube. <laughs> no! Ew! Ew. Ew. That's a really good point, though. I'm glad you pointed that out. <laughs> How would you get gravy into together? But the bait? logistics. Gross. <laughs> it's just like, put it in a bowl, 
bowl. Put it in a bowl. With a spoon. Anything, That's all you need. Any bowl oh, is fine. Gross. Cup, even. Cup. Just some kind of carrying device that's not a catheter. Uh, a catheter bag. <laughs> anyway. Jeez. So Carol tells Tagliari about Doug. Apparently, she slept with him just before she tried to commit suicide. Oh, my God. And then also admits to having kissed him two weeks prior, which we saw in a previous episode. Right. This is a big moment. Right? This is a, this is tea. This okay. is tea. <laughs> this is tea. Yeah. <laughs> Tagliari basically tells her to go to hell. Yeah. And walks he away. He is mad. He is mad. I mean, it I don't blame sense. him. Oh, yeah. No, he's I don't like, blame him at all. He's like every opportunity. Yeah. To... He's been... Uh, I mean, I have mixed feelings about this dude, but like... Yeah. I just feel like... Listen... They are not meant to be, whether she's meant to be with Doug or not, she and John, the timing is bad. She's in a bad place. She still has feelings for Doug. They need to stop trying to make this happen. Absolutely. I totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, I think definitely this is just... This is the end. Yeah. For, for Ted. And hopefully and for it actually is the Carol. end. I like, hope I hope so they too. don't, like, work it out. And, I feel like, like, John likes her enough that he might try to and then carol might be the voice of reason and say no we can't you know what this This just showed me that i think we're not in the place to even be negotiating whether or not we should be in a relationship it's not right Yeah. yeah yeah i agree and then we cut to the scene the final scene where div is literally in the middle of a very busy road when the pouring rain I don't know, screaming at cars? Like, he's not really yeah. saying anything specific, but, like, just he's overall having a moment. frustrated. Yes. Like, this is yes. definitely, he wants to be hit by a vehicle. This is, like, a breaking is point. Is the sense that I'm getting. Blow. Yeah. Also, it rains a lot in Chicago. In is this episode, particularly. Particularly. <laughs> but I, even in the last episode before this, it's like, it's always raining. Like, That's the true. grass must be so green there. <laughs> but also, div. Focus, Julie. Focus. <laughs> there was a lot of rain. And, yeah. But, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, he's definitely having some kind of psychotic break. He is not know. doing well. No. Hopefully, he gets the help that he needs. And in the next episode, we see... Him getting better and getting the help. Hopefully. He needs a break from work is what he needs. Like, he needs to take a stress leave. He does. He needs definitely needs a stress leave. Dearly needs to take a stress leave. Absolutely. I've never met anybody or heard of anybody who needs a stress leave more than Div. Yeah, same. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> All right, Julie, uh, what predictions do you have for us from this episode? Anything new? Well, much of the same, except... Okay, okay so I think I'm just going to go full on board with Mark and Susan because there is a scene where Susan is like... Mark, I need your support because I'm going through some shit with Div, but she doesn't say that. And he's like, yeah, I'll be right there. And they go for coffee and they talk. Mark isn't altogether that supportive of her. However, she does have this like inclination to confide in him. So you know what? I'm going to ship them. Mark and Susan, once Mark divorces his wife and Susan's gone from Div, they going to be together. Okay. Love it. Not necessarily forever, but... They're going to date. They might hook up. Okay. <laughs> I'm back on this train. I'm staying. Stand I'm sticking there. to it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, Peter and Sarah are definitely going to happen. There is some very strong sexual chemistry between the two of them. They are going to happen. 
She's going to come back from her fellowship. Yep. Peter. Peter. Okay. Bam. <laughs> Carol and Tag are over. Like, they're done. Good. And then Carol is obviously going to get with Doug, so. Love it. We're going to see how that happens. <laughs> That's pretty much all I'm going to say for now. Okay. In terms of relationships, Lydia yeah. seems to still be dating the cop. Yeah, have they started dating? Well, they're definitely talking. Yeah, I definitely think... Because there's, like, a familiarity between them when they interact. Because did he actually ask her out in that know. previous they episode? They didn't show it. I right. Don't think. I don't think so. I they think just she showed just, them like, flirting. Yeah, admired his dogs. Yeah. And then... But I feel like there was definitely an exchange of a number there. Yeah, I agree. And this episode, they did seem very familiar. Because, like, Al yeah. was bringing in the chicken guy. Yeah. Or the turkey guy. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. And Lydia was like, Al, hey, yeah. who are you bringing yeah. in? She called him Al, too. Yeah. Like, that's a thing. Like, this is a It wasn't like name. officer or yeah. sir. Yeah, Alan, maybe his full name. Oh, Alan. Yes, that's true. I don't know what his okay. full name is. I'm going to guess Alan. And there's yeah. really nobody for, like, Dr. Carter yet. No. Because he just likes all these crazy chicks. So we have been getting some hints about Dr. Carter, though. Like, I mean, yeah, I guess he is. He likes the crazies. Yeah, um, he does. But we have been getting, like, small hints about Dr. Carter. So there was the point where he had to move out, like, just about his history. Yeah. He had to move out of his parents' house because his dad thought he was a freeloader. Right. And then in this episode, there is a mention that he's not going to his parents for Thanksgiving because his parents are in Switzerland, which is interesting. So they're clearly rich. Hold on to this information. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. His, his coat was tailored when he first got uh-huh. there. So yeah, he has perhaps money. very rich. Yes. <laughs> so maybe so. we'll learn more about Dr. Carter in the future. Yes. But there yeah. are definitely some hints. Parents don't go to Switzerland unless they're rich. Yeah, <laughs> you, there's no way you can even vacation in Switzerland without like a little bit of money. At least upper middle class money. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> like it. Yeah. Okay, Um, well, that's the end of the podcast. Remember to go on your Apple Podcasts and rate, subscribe, and review. This really helps people to discover the podcast. So, you know, if we want to reach more people and increase our following and have more people listen, that's how we're going to do it is through you guys. So, yeah, so um, please do it. Please Please rate, review, subscribe. Yes. And we'll see you next week. Yes. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the episode, guys. This episode is created, edited, and produced by your hosts, Melissa and Julie. Music by Chris Yemes, photography by Ainsley Cardoso-Wagner, and photo editing by none other than your hosts, Melissa and Julie. You can find us on Instagram at erdebriefedpodcast or now on Twitter at erdebriefed. We post updates with new content on there as much as we can. You can also email us at erdebriefed at gmail.com with comments, questions, suggestions, and more. We try to respond as quickly as possible, and we always appreciate hearing your feedback. Thanks again.